Hello guys, and welcome to the class tonight. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I uh, hope everyone is doing well and uh, are not being too adversely affected by all of this stuff, and that you're staying well. Tonight we're going to continue in our study of Romans. Um, chapter 8 is where we are specifically in this, and I want to just continue to look at these verses and as we do this we have to remind ourselves and keep in mind the verse we present uh, previously or um, let's say it this way the, the the verse that we're going to presently look at in this session together is not removed at all is not divorced at all from the context of all the previous verses I know uh, when you get into the latter parts of chapter 8 it becomes very uh, easy to do that because of how I guess futuristic it sounds it, it does have that uh, in certain translations when you look at it in a uh, interlinear Bible and you see that the Greek is either past or present tense you, in many of the cases here you realize that these are not speaking of mere futuristic things at all. However, what we're going to talk about today has to do with something very important. And it has to do with an internal work that Paul, again, is in which Paul is encouraging the church, the believers that he's writing to, with regard to the certainty of this internal um, work that God has wrought something that has brought a complete and utter salvation, which also means deliverance, a complete deliverance from one condition, from one state we've been dealing with through this whole thing, to an altogether new con condition or new state of being because he has brought us from one state to another, from being in death to being now in life, from being in Adam to being in Christ. And this is the, con the, the contrast that he's continually making and showing that the soul that is believing, the soul that is in Christ Jesus has made that trek, has made that transition by the work of God. This is not something you actively do. This is a passive thing the soul in, uh, actually receives done unto it by the power of God himself. But Paul is encouraging these people in the certainty of it. He's already spoken concerning the certainty of it with himself as the prime example, as the, as the single individual that he's saying, this has happened to me. It's, it's so in me. The law of life has freed me from the law of sin and death. It has brought into my soul a righteousness that is fulfilled, not a righteousness I have to work for, which is not a righteousness at all, but a righteousness in its full and eternal perfection. And that is all accomplished through Christ, death, burial, resurrection, and the indwelling of the one who is raised has performed this fully. It is not something I now have to do. Not something I could do if I even tried, because Paul had tried. That's what that's what Romans 7 is all about, his endeavor. 
under the law, attempting to fulfill righteousness, attempting to be the fulfillment of the law in his efforts, in his religious zeal, trying to do everything the law said perfectly. And even at the perfection, at the level of perfection, Paul performed it. He still had to cry out, who shall deliver me from the bondage of being in chained to this body of death? What body? Adam. Even though he was clothed with a garment called the law of Moses that, that had a perfection testified within it, he could not do to the internal condition of his soul being dark and death and darkness and sin and corruptibility being the internal government. He could not perform anything with regard to the law. He couldn't. Why? Because the life of which the law spoke was still missing. What we're talking about is Paul encouraging them in the fact and confirming in every way he can possibly do, utilizing every possible word picture and analogy he could to declare to them that that is the life that is now present. That the righteousness that he in ignorance and in the torment of being under the law, the failure that he knew was always present has been alleviated through the work of God bringing into his soul a righteousness fulfilled. And therefore, and, in, and that righteousness is present due to the presence of a life in which there is nothing to condemn. No charge brought against it. Why? Because it's not my life perfected. It is the perfect life himself being given to the soul as a gift of God's grace. So this is what he's talking about. That conflict that contrast between two men, but he's ensuring them that that is not still some fight we're trying to get out of one into another. He's assuring them in the reality that they have been brought from the one to the other. We have to understand that. That has to be the understanding that we approach these verses in and approach our our own salvation in a daily basis, understanding that the work of God at new birth did once and for all, and in totality, what no effort under the law could do. It freed us from an internal bondage to the internal government called sin and death. And therefore, by that transaction, has brought into the soul life and life in abundance. Righteousness in abundance. Why? How did he do it? Because it is of God. Remember who did this work. Remember who orchestrated the thing. It's not a work of the flesh. It's not a work of man. It's not a work of religion. It is a work of God performed perfectly in Christ Jesus, whom he has made unto us all spiritual blessings, all spiritual realities, all of the things that the law testified of but could not convey to the inner man, God by his spirit now has. That's the beauty of this. 
That's the beauty of it. This is the very thing that he's encouraging them in here. So let's read these verses. Because I think what we're seeing here is a more rounded um, explanation of Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. We're seeing him give just a fuller, uh, in multiple ways, a fuller explanation of it. Romans 8 verse 15. Let's start there. 15 and 16 is what we'll read. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Again, received. This is all about something received because the soul of man is always passive in this. Meaning, for the soul to possess anything at all, it had to be acted upon by the power of a stronger party. It had to have the thing that it possesses conveyed to it by the power, strength, and ability of another source. Because the soul cannot be a source in itself. That's, that's the problem with humanity. The soul trying to be an active source from which everything originates. That's religion. And the, and the whole point is how foolish that is because if we're born again, if we're in Christ, then the Spirit of God has conveyed to the soul as a passive partaker all things. Now the soul needs not to be an active uh, originator of spiritual things. It needs to be a cognizant recipient. of it to know what God has brought about to know the reality conveyed by the spirit that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we have and this is on the heels of him speaking of this thing that he has done and the work of God and how unfortunate it is when we futurize it when we again take chapter 1 and chapter 2 and divorce them from one another just because there's some terminology used there that we don't quite understand. In chapter 2, Paul speaks of that which I hath not seen, and the, and the word there is actually cannot. It's not hath not. I cannot see, ear cannot hear, neither can it even be entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Or you could say those who believe. What is that? What is that that he has prepared, made ready, and performed? What is it? Go back to the marriage supper. It is a table fully spread, not because we bring anything to the table, but because he has already made it a full banquet and bid us to come. That's the whole thing. He has bid us come and dine, come and partake of the Lamb. Participate in that which I have accomplished and prepared and performed. What is it? 
He's previously said it already. It's not something futuristic. That's the issue. We unfortunately divorce that section because it sounds like, wow, there's something still yet to come, and we haven't seen it yet. We haven't heard it yet, and we can't even imagine. So everybody pushes that off into the future and say, one day that'll be something that we can observe. No, the whole point is it is something that can't be seen, heard, or known understood. In fact, he goes on and further explains that when he's speaking of this, he's speaking of a reality, the depths of which only the Spirit of God can know. Therefore, only the Spirit of God can make known. But what is that thing that is so deep? What is that reality that is so eternal and so sufficient in its nature? What is it? that we cannot know and see and understand. What is that that necessitates the Spirit himself to carry us on? Because that's right after that, he says, but the Spirit of God has revealed these things unto us, and he further elaborates on that and says, for these things we have the Spirit of God that we may know the things that have been freely given of God in Christ Jesus. One literal translation says that we may know the things that have been graciously bestowed to us in Christ Jesus. That's a free gift freely given, the, the bestowal of something in the grace of God. What is it? Because that's the thing that can't be seen and heard and known. Why? Because it is of spirit, not of flesh. Not even glorified flesh one day, not even a spiritual city, Not none of that. It is a spiritual internal thing that he's even talking about here when he speaks of the spirit of bondage or the spirit of of adoption because the word spirit, he's using it to convey something that's internal, not external, not seen, not known, not observed with natural faculties. What is that though? What is that thing that is not seen, cannot be seen, that we now have the spirit that we may know? The last part of chapter one. Of God are you in Christ, who is made unto us wisdom. And as we've said before, the word wisdom there is actually the heading of all of the things. It, this is the wisdom of God that he's made unto us. It is him in us being justification, sanctification, and redemption. A work of God, complete. That's why he will begin chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians by saying, listen guys, I want to start this out by letting you know this. You lack nothing as you are awaiting the appearing of Christ. You are in need of nothing. You're in need of no further thing at all. You are in lack in no way as you await his appearing, meaning as you await the seeing of the thing that God has prepared and provided to your soul, which is Christ himself, you lack nothing because he's already there. The knowing does not make it present, nor does it make it perfect, nor does it make it effectual. 
He being there makes it effectual and makes it perfect. Therein you lack nothing as you wait. On the spirit who has been given to us to make known what cannot be seen, cannot be heard, or imagined. That is what we're talking about here. So, we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And again, In context here, Paul will say later, Romans chapter 8, verse 21, speaking of the same thing, because he's telling them that the thing that was always hoped for, the thing that every eschatological uh, offering to the nation of Israel, given of God, every, every promise, every prophecy, everything written, everything spoken concerning that which would come, is this very salvation that we now have. That's what fulfills all of the hope that those prophecies and promises convey to creation. Is Christ in you, salvation itself. Now, so he will go on in verifying that. This is, the, this is that liberty from bondage through this internal transaction. Because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that sounds like something yet to be. But again, you have to keep it in the context. Because that was something that was yet to come. That was something that all creation subjected to its own vanity by God under the law was anticipating. And he, he keeps that terminology in that way to basically show this was always the prophetic hope. This was always the anticipated end and what we have received in Christ is that end which was anticipated. The deliverance from the bondage of corruption and we think that that has to do with the planet because it uses the word creature. No, we're talking about all creation being Jew or Gentile the creature that was made subject to its own vanity under the law, subjected in hope by God to its own emptiness. Why? So that when he brings the substance in, they would understand, they would come to him and, and receive him as the substance that they understand they do not have because throughout that subjection, they have been faced with the fact that there is nothing in them of substance at all with regard to spiritual things, with regard to righteousness or holiness. It is all death. It is all corruptibility. They are chained forever without this work being wrought. They are chained hopelessly and forever to this body of sin and death. This is the deliverance from the bondage to corruption that he's referring to here. 
got on hold. <laughs> All right. So this is what we're addressing in this verse. There's a couple of translations here that I wrote in verse 15 of Romans 8. This is from the New American Standard, just to give it a different word that is used, because we've been talking about slavery here. This New American Standard says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You, uh, the English Standard says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. And again, this is not a distinction from the slavery we've been talking about. Throughout Romans 6, he's talking about being slaves of sin. Therefore, being slaves to sin, we are free from righteousness because you can't be the slaves of two, uh, a slave of two masters. You can't be subject to two masters at the same time. That's the whole point of these statements, that if you are not, uh, that you cannot be both um, indwelt by and subjected to the spirit of bondage once you have received the spirit of adoption, you can't have the spirit of, of bondage. And that's the whole point. He's saying, as those who have received the spirit of adoption, that, that spirit, that transaction has not left us still subject to that corruptibility. It is a total deliverance being addressed here. And that's the thing religion doesn't teach us. A complete deliverance from a once and for all work of God in the soul called new birth, that work has brought us from life, from death unto life. There's the whole of it. That's what this is talking about. From enslavement to sin, that's not a process. That is a work performed fully by God at new birth, brought from enslavement to sin to now being slaves of righteousness under the headship of another man, under and, and uh, being now by God himself brought to subjection to a new master. That's a work of God, not a process we go through to get to that level or get to that place. No, this is the reality of new birth. This is what has happened. An internal transaction that has, con that has brought this about. thought here is what they had actually received by grace through faith new birth had not left left them under subjection to their previous condition as slaves of sin and thus leaves them in a state of fear that such an internal condition warranted why because that fear had to do with constantly breaching the laws constantly uh breaking the law breaking the commandments not because you did it intentionally, but because you could not do anything else because of the internal government uh, unto which the soul was subjected. Meaning righteousness can never be achieved as long as the source you're reaching to, to, to produce that end is that which is entirely opposite of it and opposed to it. Read uh, chapter 5 of Galatians, it tells you the flesh and the spirit, they are opposed to one another, enemies of one another, at enmity at all times, and cannot be used in a cooperative manner to, 
to bring about the goal that you're after. And Paul's point was, he's looking at believers today who are in the Spirit, Galatians 3. He's writing to those who are now, by the work of this work here, are now in the Spirit, brought not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, as we've already read in Romans 8. They are brought by the Spirit into a fullness of all spiritual blessings, yet they are being swayed by Judaizers to reach into the law, into external rites and ceremonies and religious zeal, things that would affect your outer man but never affect your inner man, never affect the soul, only transform the flesh. Like circumcision, like eat these things, don't eat these things, touch not, taste not, handle not. Same thing he says in Colossians chapter 2 because it's the same struggle that Christians are being faced with, being bombarded by these religious people who have a zeal after the law and trying to add that to Christ. He's writing to them and saying, you cannot make the spirit of Christ and the flesh cooperate together to produce righteousness. Because the two will not work together, they are mutually exclusive. They are absolute opposites. In fact, they are enemies. So when you try to do that and use the one to make the other happen, use use the flesh to bring about a spiritual end. Or try to say, hey, we're in the spirit, but we can add these fleshly things and make it better or make it more holy or make it more righteous. No, you cannot do that which you would do. Go to Romans 7 and Paul says it. That which I would do, I cannot do. Every time I would try to do the good, evil is still there. Why? Because he was trying to do that. Bring about a spiritual end utilizing the flesh, utilizing efforts, utilizing man's exercise and his power, his, his ability. So this is what we're talking about, a full and complete deliverance, not something that's left us still subject to one thing, trying to get to another thing, but a full and complete deliverance from one thing by being brought into or having brought into us something altogether new called the spirit of adoption or the law of the spirit of life or the spirit of sonship or the spirit of Christ. It is that same reality being addressed. It's not something different. So let's go on here. Romans chapter 8. Verse 15, you've not received the spirit of bondage. This is uh, from Adam Clark's commentary. He says, all that were under the law were under bondage to its rites and ceremonies. And as through the prevalence of that corrupt nature with which every human being is polluted to remove which the law gave no assistance, meaning the law could not help you deal with the internal nature 
the internal subjection to sin and death. That the law could not do that. That's what Romans 8 says has happened by the work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and now his indwelling. Having accomplished that complete finished work, he indwells us as the accomplishment of something the law could not do. What? The fulfilling in us of righteousness. Because the law of Moses relied upon the weakness of man to perform it. Knowing that that was an impossibility. The law of Moses was never, and God in giving the law of Moses was never anticipating man to finally live up to that standard. That wasn't it. The law of Moses was there to accuse and to condemn and to judge man because he could not live up to that standard. But it was simultaneously a prophecy of the life that was coming that was the standard, being that that life that was coming was the very origin of such a perfect righteous law such a spiritual testimony. So he goes on. That law could not do it. God has done it, offering transgress, uh, often transgressing. Consequently, they had forfeited their lives. You remember, to breach the law in so many cases was to forfeit your life, to die. It was death. That was a sentence. That's what he's talking about, the spirit of bondage again to fear. Because under the law of Moses, death was the, the punishment of all breaches of the law. We'll read another verse here in a moment in Hebrews that says the exact same thing and speaks of our deliverance from such fear and such bondage. But how does that happen? It happens by new birth. It happens because there has been an altogether new life brought into the soul by the work of God's grace. This is not, what he's talking about here is not just freedom from the law of Moses. It is freedom from an internal state of imprisonment to our corruption to man's corruption, to the corruptibility conveyed to all men, the sin conveyed to all men under the headship of one man called Adam. This fear that you're, uh, this is from uh, Jameson Fawcett and Brown's commentary, as when you were under the law which worked wrath, that was your condition before you believed, living in legal bondage, haunted with incessant forebodings under a sense of unpardoned sin. It was not to, uh, and it was not to perpetuate that wretched state that you have received the Spirit. Meaning, the Spirit of God is an entirely new life. Therefore, is an entire deliverance from that previous condition of sin, death, and fear because of that incessant, perpetual state of corruption. It was, look, incessant forebodings under the sense of unpardoned sin. That's what we see in Romans 7. And that was really Paul speaking of all mankind under the law. Why? Romans 3. Because whether Jew or Gentile, because the law covered all men, condemned all men, 
whether Jew or Gentile, here's the state. The law has concluded all men under sin because there is none righteous. No, not one. It is impossible to try to dig yourself out of that hole. God himself has brought about that work. He has brought us from such a state of no, not one to not I, but Christ. That's the true transaction here. To a enslavement under the headship of a man where all who are subjects to that man of sin and death and corruption, Adam himself, it's no, not one, not one righteous, not one holy, not one at all. No hope of it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To now in Adam, through the work and propitiation of this man, as the door into which we have entered, we come into another altogether new reality where it is not I, but Christ liveth in me. I am dead to sin and death. I am crucified with Christ. That crucified with Christ doesn't mean dead in sin. It means with Christ, dead to it. That's Romans 6. Dead to it. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. The word with there is the assurance of a joining with him in the death to sin by which we are partakers of such a work of grace and a true deliverance from one condition. Why? Because we're dead to it. Why? Because that husband, Romans 7, is dead. That man is dead. Therefore, we who are now married to another man, are dead to him. Are dead to that man because he's dead. Remember, it's not the wife that died. It's not the wife that had to die. It's the husband that had to die. The head of the wife had to die. And by reason of his death, she became dead too. She was dead in him because of the union under his headship as long as they were married. Could not be married to another. Could not be in any way separate from the headship of that man to whom she was married. But when he died, she became free. And was married to another. That's the whole reality of it. That's the whole work we're talking about here. A complete, utter, this is that utter salvation that he says he came to save us to the uttermost. That's it. It's complete. It's to the uttermost. No residue of the first. And most Christians are still today still trying to fight and get rid of and cast out and kill and die to that thing that is already dead and gone. It's not about a process of dying to, it's a process of growing up in the head, 
the headship unto which we are now brought, under which we are now made subject. The headship that has provided every spiritual blessing instead of a headship that makes any spiritual blessing, any spiritual reality impossible. That's what he's conveying here. I'm getting way behind. I'm going to skip that. <clears throat> Let's go back to Romans 6 and see the same thing being said in Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, that is being said here in Romans 8. Just to show he's not changing anything as to the context and the point that he is making, he has said the same thing as he said previously. It's just a little different in its wording, in its way of being presented. He does it throughout this letter. Thanks be to God, again, Romans 6, 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin were, past, once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What does that mean? You have received Christ by the work, by the gospel. You have believed with the heart and have been born again. Verse 18, and having been set free, having been, that's past tense, with a continual and per, uh, a continual and perpetual continuance of that work, having been set free from sin, have become what? Slaves of righteousness. So you're brought from one enslavement to another the same spiritual transaction being addressed as the spirit of bondage and the spirit of adoption. Now, John chapter 8, we're going to look at a verse here that speaks of this same bondage, this same spirit of bondage. Again, it's not about God having so many different spirits. It's about Paul using these phrases, these term, terms to convey an internal thing spirit of bondage or the spirit of adoption. And we're going to talk about this spirit of adoption. Hopefully we'll get to some of it today, but we really need to address that as those who have received the spirit of adoption to understand what that means and to see it in the light of a verse or a series of verses that have been woefully misunderstood because they have been so divorced from one another. John 8, verse 33, this is where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and saying, you will know that you, uh, you continue in my word, you shall be my disciples, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And now they're upset. Why? Because he speaks of being made free. From what? So they answer him here in John 8, 33 and say, they answer him, we are Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. How say you, you shall be made free? Now you see, their whole emphasis was external bondage. They had to reject the fact that they had been enslaved, or as a nation, they had been enslaved to many men and nations. We're Abraham's seed. We have never been in bondage. 
And this brings in a whole other discussion about who is the seed, not to seeds as of many, but to thy seed, which is Christ. We are Abraham's seed, really. And this is part of what he's going to address here because he doesn't refer to this enslavement or being in bondage or slaves. He doesn't even refer to it in an external way. Look at what he says to them. Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. There's the bondage he's referring to. And again, we look at committed sin and we just think about a bunch of bad things we do. But remember, we've addressed this in previous sessions before concerning committed sin. Committed sin is not about isolated acts that we can point to and say, mm, that was a sinful act, that was sin. No, it's about a habitual and perpetual unbreakable nature that brings about action that you can't do anything other than it's not just some isolated thing that oh i sinned yesterday no i am in a state of sin as a man who is unregenerate that's what all of this is about being in the spirit of bondage is about being unregenerate having a nature that is sin and death and corruption governing from within it brings about the habitualness of this condition. Remember, we talked about this in 1 John, where it says that he that is born of God doth not commit sin, some translations say. Some just say do, does not sin. And we take that and we can isolate that part and say, wait a minute, that's, that's not true. That, that's not true. But why does he not sin? Why? Does it say, those born of God doth not commit sin? Because the seed, God's seed, his seed remains in him. And such a seed, some translations will say such heredity, cannot commit sin, cannot miss the mark, cannot come short. Because those statements about cannot sin has nothing to do with you or me. It has to do with the seed by which we are born. Because remember, it the whole thing begins by he that is born of God. That is, has had this internal transaction by which he is born of an incorruptible seed. That there is no sin there. There's nothing of corruptibility or death or sin there in that seed. Therefore, it is impossible for sin to be a, that, that, the, the state of those who are born of that seed because it is impossible for that seed to commit sin because he's not speaking about actions. He's speaking of nature. He's speaking of the very makeup and essence of being. That seed that we're born of when we're born of God has no sin in it. He is a perfect man without sin. He is salvation itself without sin that we receive. He's speaking to Pharisees here who are not born again, but are under the false assumption that they are holy, that they are righteous, and that they are Abraham's seed because they're 
Jews by birth, natural birth. And he's saying, no, you're still under this bondage. You're still under the headship of this continual, habitual state of sin. Therefore, you are subjects of sin. You are in bondage, whether you know it or not. You are enslaved to this man of sin because you're still under his headship. You're still married to him because you haven't come to be married to another because that is an internal work. You haven't been born of another seed, a seed in which there is no sin. Therefore, a seed that will free you, whose very internal presence frees you from sin and death. This is the bondage he's talking about. And then he goes on and says, so the son, if he sets you free or makes you free, you are free indeed, in reality. No caveats, no conditions, no ifs, ands, or buts. This is free indeed and absolute. Do you really, do I really understand the weight of that and how absolute this work is that has brought about such a state of no condemnation, because that's really what he's talking about still. He's just further broadening it by saying it in different ways. But we're still talking about a life in which there is no condemnation, a righteousness that is perfect in its absolute totality, that needs no supplementation or no additions like circumcision and touch not take. No, no external supplementation necessary because God has done it all in Christ and provided all as Christ to our soul. From the people's New Testament, or let me read this first. This is from uh, Romans chapter 8, commentary, Weast Word Studies. He quotes uh, Denny, who explains, It was not the spirit that is proper to slaves that leads to leads men to shrink from God in fear as they had done when under the law of sin and death. Remember, he says under the law of sin and death, not the law of Moses. The law of sin and death. That's an internal law. It is a spirit of adoption, a spirit proper to those who were being translated. Listen to this, because this is the important part of this lesson that we need to focus on throughout. We need to focus on this part because this is what we're going to look at really closely when we get into the Galatians 3 and 4 verses. It is now a spirit of adoption, a spirit that is proper to those who were being translated from the servile to the filial relation to God. What does that mean? From a slave relationship as under a master that is a tormentor to now being brought into a filial, that means a family relationship with God as our father. Why? Because we have the spirit of adoption in us crying, Abba, Father, bringing just because he's present, 
bringing our soul into a perfect, unbreakable, eternally established relationship with God. Not a relationship of our own, however. This is what makes it so real and so sure. This is what makes it so concrete and unmovable. It is a fellowship that belongs to the Son himself. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have been called unto the fellowship of the Son, not fellowship with the Son that we can get in or get out or break and mess up and enhance or decrease. No, it is we are called by the grace of God into a already established fellowship that belongs to the Son of God's love. That's the same thing as Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 1, that we, by God's grace, having been predestinated to it, are now accepted in the beloved one. Same thing. Same thing. It is a relationship that belongs exclusively to him. That's what the spirit of adoption crying in our heart, Abba Father's all about. It's not he now teaches us how to have relationship with God. No, it's him originating in our soul by this beautiful work. Initiating in our soul an eternal relationship that has no beginning and no end and does not rely upon us for its effectualness. Because it's been, and it shall always be. You see, that's the beauty of this. That's how real this is. When we receive this spirit of adoption, when we receive the person of the beloved Son of God in our hearts, we receive a relationship that is eternally fixed and settled. And it cannot be moved, cannot be changed, it is not based upon emotion. It is not based upon deeds. It's not based upon feelings. It's based upon the Son himself, who is the loved one of God and who becomes by the grace of God, the love of God shed abroad in our own hearts. This is him. So we are not slaves to God as those who are under fear of a tormentor who will beat us because we are constantly breaking his commands. No. We are in the house because only the Son has access into the house. And being found in the Son, we have been brought into the Father's house. We now have access into the Father's house by the grace of God. Through faith, by grace, we have access. We stand in this grace, clothed with him, graced of God in the beloved of him. Where he in our soul cries out, Abba, Father, and the beauty of Abba Father that he uses here is that Abba is the Greek, or I'm sorry, 
Abba is the Hebrew. That means dad or father. Father is the Greek. So you have the Hebrew and the Greek. Jew and Gentile, or Jew and Gentile, being brought into that one declaration of eternal fellowship. So what he's doing, why he utilizes both phrases in both different languages, is to show that this one son, this one spirit of adoption, coming into the soul, brings into the soul of Jew and Gentile a relationship that covers Jew and Gentile, meaning it, it, it the weight of the relationship does not rest upon the performance of the Jew or the Gentile because we already have read in Romans 3, no, not one. He brings a relationship into the soul of a Jew and a Gentile that is not dependent upon the Jew or the Gentile, yet, yet sufficiently supplies to the Jew and the Gentile an unbreakable fellowship with the Father himself. That's what he's saying here, that we have by having now given to us by this work the spirit that is proper to those who are translated from the servant, servitude and bondage relationship under the headship of Adam to now a filial or a familial relationship with God our Father. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture he paints here in these terms, showing our salvation to be as real as it truly is. Not a vengeful, wrathful God who's waiting to punish, but a God whose love has been exercised toward us. given to us in the person and presence of his son who is our life. So he says to the Pharisees in Matthew, the father knows me and I know the father. Establishing in their midst the exclusiveness of this fellowship of the Son, this relationship that he alone possesses, a knowing that is exclusive to the Father and the Son, a relation that is exclusive to the Father and the Son, meaning that all others are shut out from it. That is what's actually being conveyed in those beautiful words. However, the wonderful grace of God, the reason he came was to do exactly what he did in the midst of those who were under the law with all of their labor and toil and exhaustion because Romans 7 tells you why. And he reaches out to them with these beautiful words. Having first established his fellowship with God as being the exclusive possession his exclusive possession. He says, come to me. Come to me. 
while you're trying to establish something of your own with God. I am the one who has it. While you're trying to get a relationship with God through your multitude of efforts, works, your great zeal toward Him, there is a an eternal fact that makes all of those efforts null and void. And that is, I'm the only one who has and shall ever have true relationship with the Father. If you will have any relationship with God, you will have that relationship in me. You will come to me. You will take my yoke. There's the bondage to righteousness. You will take my yoke upon you. And you will learn of me. You will walk in the confines of who I am in you. And you will receive, therefore, in that context, in the confines of that enslavement, you will receive relationship with God. Not one of your own that is up and down and roller coaster ride time because you don't know from one day to another whether it's a good relationship or a bad one. No, you're, I'm not going to give you your own relationship with God. That is disaster. Unfortunately, that's what most Christians want, and that's what most preachers preach, and that's what we see as being salvation. We have our relationship with God, and we preach this idea of personal relationship with God, which is a a ludicrous idea, a dangerous idea. There's no such thing as personal, individual relationships with God. There's no such thing. Now, each individual must possess the relationship with God if they are going to be born again. That's what they receive, but they don't receive their own relationship with God. You see that with the high priest. You see that with the, you know, the, the Holy of Holies, and that's another thing altogether. There's no such thing. The, the nation of Israel did not have millions of people with their own relationship with God. Everything that they had that they would bring to God, they had to bring to one place, to one man, to be offered at one location. Therefore, that whole picture is there's one relationship in the midst of all. perfectly embodied in one man. No such thing as an individual relationship. So we have, I have one, you have one. So we could say, my relationship with God's better than yours. Not if you're born again. Not if you're born again. Your relationship's not better than mine. Your relationship is exactly the same because when he called us unto himself and we received that call and came by the grace of God through faith, he did not give us our own. He gave us his own. He gave us himself as an unbreakable, eternally established, truly effectual relationship with God that we could not change if we tried. We can't make it worse. We 
can't make it better because it will never move at all. It is perpetually sure. And it is a relationship that has none of the previous state of the, the soul of man attached to it. It has no condemnation attached to it. It has no punishment and no judgment in that way attached to it. It has none of that. That is why there is no fear here. Perfect love has cast out fear. Because a perfect life has no condemnation attached to it. And that is the life we have received as those who have received Christ himself. That's what this is addressing. Now, we didn't get into the spirit of um, adoption and all of that. And there's many, many more places and commentaries and verses that we're going to look at. I, I want us to really look at that. It's necessary. So in our next class together, that's what we will do. I hope this has helped. I hope this has been a helpful session um, for you. Thanks for tuning in tonight, guys. Uh, let me just say, as far as I know, everything being uh, what it is, we're going to be having the conference here in June. That's 22nd through the 26th of June. Now, you know, we're not sure how many people will actually be attending physically. So we will be, um, you know, having it online, just like we do all of our sessions. We'll be having it live online, uh, streamed from the uh, research center. So if you're not able to come uh, or, you know, don't feel comfortable coming, not a big deal. We will be doing that. We will, uh, uh, there is, you know, on YouTube where, where, you know, you'll be able to go to our YouTube channel and find it there. We'll be uh, putting... Uh, on the YouTube channel, we'll be putting a schedule on when we get the schedule finalized of, of the times of the services and sessions, but we will be doing that. So that is a way you can be a part of the conference without actually being physically here. Those of you who are making the trek, um, we can, you know, help you in whatever way we can as far as rooms. I'm not sure about uh, accommodations around how hotels and motels are doing things right now. Uh, we have some rooms still available up at the research center. Uh, they go pretty quick though. They may have already been taken. I'm not sure, but those of you who are making, uh, the effort to get here and coming, uh, to be physically with us during this time, uh, just call us if we can help you in any way, make those accommodations and we will. Otherwise we look forward to, um, having the conference and those of you who are going to be with us online we look forward to that as well and we look forward to seeing those of you who will be here so until then we love you amen <laughs>